You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Friday the 26th of February. Hello, Kevin. What are we talking about this week, Anne? Well, Kevin, something you said on a previous show stuck with me. And what you said is that good economic management by the Australian Federal Government is a matter of finding the sweet spot. And I got to thinking, well, where is this sweet spot? And I realised that the sweet spot lies somewhere between too much spending in the economy, which we might call inflation, and too little spending in the economy, which we might call a recession, which usually involves a lot of unemployment. I thought we might look at what lies outside of the sweet spot on the side of the too much spending, otherwise known as inflation. Excellent. So we're talking about inflation this week. And to help us look into this, I thought we might talk with Zoltan Bexley. So hello, Zoltan, and welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. So Kevin and I actually met you through Modern Money Australia In the pre-COVID days, when we actually could be in person and get together and talk about economics, what I remember is that I asked you once if we were going to talk to you on the show about a topic, what would be your choice of topic? And I don't know if you remember this, but what you said to me was inflation. (laughs) Do you remember saying that? Yes, I do remember that. And it is because it's one of the most poorly understood phenomena that everybody talks about. I have to say, when you said inflation, given that I was was still really new to macroeconomics, so my immediate reaction was, oh, no, (laughs) this is either going to be really boring or really complicated. Um, But since our short conversation then, I have discovered that inflation almost goes to the heart of macroeconomics. And as you say, it's a concept we all think we know. Oh, absolutely. I shared the majority's view thinking that I know what I was talking about. (laughs) One thing I've discovered about you on Facebook is you are a master of that succinct, pithy statement that really makes somebody think about what they're talking about and and go away and think about it. (laughs) Wow. Well, actually, I've got one of yours here, which is... um, Okay. uh, You once said that uh, inflation doesn't happen on balance sheets. And I feel quite proud of myself in that I think I understand that now. Which is that? Uh, um, which is that? Um, uh, hang on. <laughs> which is that? Inflation doesn't happen when you just put more money onto your balance sheet. Inflation happens when you actually spend that money. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see where we end up with our understanding today. Yeah. Well, you know, when when we compare stocks and flows, we are in trouble. Mm. Um, if we could start by defining our terms here. So how would you define inflation? Inflation is just basically the increase of prices over a period of time. That's what it is. Having said that, the causes of inflation 
are disputed. I heard economists say that a price rise is not inflation, which of course surprised me because I always thought that prices going up, that's what inflation was. So the rising of a price is not necessarily inflation. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Let's say that we have a monetary system and everybody has X amount in their bank accounts and everybody's possessions remain the same and everybody's claim on real resources remain the same. But then we add a zero to everything. Has anything changed? No, it has not. That's just a once-a-time price rise. Mm -hmm. The conventional method of measuring inflation is looking at prices of a basket of goods, I think uh, something like 80-odd items, different items, and it's just an average of that. Not all prices rise at the same time. Some prices might even decrease. Like you, you get a lot more phone or fridge for your money than you would have got uh, 10 years ago. But the price of, let's say, uh Phone charges, they are rising. Okay, whatever they average out to, if you've got a lot of things that are increasing, it won't show you that some things are decreasing in this total basket, which is that what people refer to as the CPI? Consumer Price Index, yes. So that's the tool that economists are using to measure whether inflation is going up and down, but what you're saying that it's not a terribly accurate tool. I'm not saying it's not accurate, it's just a uh, reason we have it three. It's no point including uh, items in there which are inherently volatile. We don't mm -hmm. include house prices. But the things that people live on day by day are normally included, like, you know, public transport tickets. As you say, house prices are left out of the inflation figures, and yet it's a very central input to a lot of people's daily expenses. And the fact that house prices have inflated enormously, which puts a lot of financial pressure on people, and I've always found that confusing. Of course, your standard of living is greatly influenced by how much mortgage you are paying or how much um, rent you are paying. But when there is uh, zero inflation everywhere and one of the things is rising, that would be the cause of the underlying inflation or the headline inflation. So it seems like the economists are pretty well in agreement that there is a phenomenon called inflation. They can kind of agree at how you measure it. But when it comes to understanding what's causing the inflation, where we've got um, a difference in opinion. The most commonly used definition of inflation comes from a gentleman called Milton Friedman. And it is as simply too much money chasing too few goods. And that sounds very plausible, and everybody thinks that's the case, and it's complete rubbish. Yeah, it's very a very intuitive idea, isn't it? Too much money chasing too few goods. So what what exactly happens when inflation occurs? The, the main point that most people are missing is that when somebody is paying more, somebody else is getting more. If you are selling the car that is getting inflated in price, you are getting more for the same item. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, inflation. You know, everybody thinks the economy is going down the drain, but that's not necessarily true. You know, I can think from a social justice point of view that inflation can be a really good thing, depending what causes it. Mm -hmm. Let's say that the inflation is caused by the government doubling the 
the wages paid to the workers mm -hmm. doing whatever the government wants to achieve, picking up rubbish or rehabilitating environments or something like that, and thereby achieving full employment. If the government, let's say, decides that I will pay everybody who wants to do that sort of job 60, 70 grand, then that will become the, the de facto minimum wage. Now, is it a bad thing? Because then what will happen is that the private sector employers will have to bid up the price of the, of the workers in order to attract them. So is it a bad thing? That's a matter of opinion. But it would redistribute the claim on real resources by the members of society. Mm -hmm. That is the most important thing that most people, most people overlook. That when somebody is paying more, somebody is getting more. And it really depends on who's getting more and who's getting less. That's what I've heard, is that in this inflation story, there are winners and losers. Absolutely. So my definition, which would be very out of this ballpark, would be that it is the redistribution of claims on real resources. That's what inflation is. And you're looking then at it from how it affects what people get out of the real economy. Yeah, who's getting more and who's getting less? Prices don't just go up by uh, a miracle or, or chance. You know, somebody decides somewhere that they can claim more. Mm. Inflation is caused by people wanting more for whatever they are producing. You or I want higher wages. The energy producers want more money for their produce. If there's a severe inflationary bout, who wins? Anybody who's got debts wins. Anybody who's got savings loses. So let's say you take out a mortgage of a million dollars today. It's a ridiculous amount of money to borrow. But let's say that, you know, you have a 200% inflation and assuming that your wages are growing with the inflation. So your earning capacity has doubled or tripled or quadrupled, but the money you owe is still the same. So that's how debtors are winners out of the inflation. If you are a saver, your earning capacity out of your savings is approaching zero. Not only that, but your capital and what you can get for your capital is reduced. So that's how savers are losers out of uh, inflation. And contrary to that, People think that deflation could be a good thing because price of uh, goods will go down. Well, let me tell you, deflation is a terrible thing. You will never be able to pay off any debts because your earning capacity will be shrinking and your debt remains on the same level. There's a presumption that if everybody is earning more, that it's going to cause inflation. To me, inflation is more of a, a short supply situation. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you have a, a small town in Western Australia, and they discover iron ore nearby, and it becomes a mining town, and you have all the fly-in, fly-out miners who are getting paid a lot of money. You'll see house prices go up because there's a lot of demand for accommodation, and there's a lot of people with money in their pocket. There's a short supply for that accommodation, and it'll push the price of accommodation up. But you won't see necessarily a price rise in things like um, beer or milk because that area will be supplied properly with 
those commodities. So just just because people have got more money in their pockets doesn't necessarily mean the price of everything is going to go up. Am I heading down the right track in identifying inflation as caused by more than just people having money in their pocket? I would give you a different example. You know, imagine a, a house auction. The price of the house is bid up by the competition resulting from the scarcity of the one particular property. Nobody is stupid enough to go and offer more money than the house is, you know, worth to them just because they have more money. Just because I uh, got my inheritance from Uncle Joe, I will just buy double the price because I can. No, nobody does that. That is the Friedman-esque argument that, you know, I've got more money, therefore prices will rise. No, that doesn't happen. You have to actually have a competition for a scarce resource to bid up the prices. What you're saying is if you've got half a dozen millionaires standing at at an auction, if nobody's bidding, the price isn't going to go up. No, it will not. I I know that through bitter experience. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. So that's a really important distinction, which is there's a difference between having money and even increasing the money supply and then spending the money that you have or spending the money that's in the money supply. Absolutely. It doesn't matter how much money you've got, you have to actually spend it in order to cause anything like an inflationary bout. If I gave you $3 trillion, one and a half times the Australian GDP, and I would say to you that uh, I give you all this money, but you have to hold it for 10 years, and then you can spend it. Now, when do you think the inflation out of that $3 trillion will occur? When you start spending it, not beforehand. You can't build up a price of anything unless you spend money. And you started to talk about the common sense understanding, which is also somehow related to a school of economic thought that was known as monetarism, started by Milton Friedman. And perhaps I better tell Larry and Larissa, our listeners, <laughs> who, who Milton is. So he was this um, American economist um, who died in 2006. He rose to prominence in the 1970s and in the 80s became an advisor to the Republican President Ronald Reagan and the conservative British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. So if anyone knows anything about the Reagan-Thatcher years, that ought to send a shiver down your spine. He came out to Australia as well, Anne. He was in Australia too. He left his footprint here as well. <laughs> yep. And uh, but he was he was the leader of what was known as the Chicago School of Economics because they were over there at the University of Chicago and what ended up being known as monetarism, and uh, that essentially usurped what was known as Keynesianism. And modern monetary theory sort of stands on the shoulder of Keynes rather than Milton. So we're not a friend of Milton on this show. But anyway, he had this whole theory about what inflation was. And I think you started to talk about that, Zoltan. Uh, he wrote an infamous or famous, whichever side you are looking from, <laughs> uh, article, The Optimum uh, Quantity of Money. And it's got equations, and those equations are built on very optimistic and really unrealistic assumptions, like, it assumes, for example, that the economy is at full employment. It assumes that everybody's got the optimum amount of savings. And it assumes that the velocity of money is constant. 
And when you introduce all those uh, constants, the, the only two variables left in the equation are the quantity of money and inflation. So if one of them goes up, the other one must go up as well. And that's just a totally ridiculously stupid proposal. So Milton sort of revived this theory known as the quantity theory of money and as a formula is in fact a great example of garbage in, garbage out. So like most of other Milton Freeman's um, theories, it was simplistic. (laughs) So out of this proposal, this is where we get the idea that increasing the money supply will increase inflation. Yes. And he assumed that if the government decides to drop a bunch of money out of helicopters, it will increase the prices of uh, consumer items. It will induce inflation. The helicopters often come along when, when you have these discussions about inflation. And Larry and Larissa, our listeners, now they'll know that they're probably encountering the Milton Friedman monetarist idea of things. I think it's good for people to have heard the helicopter because, um, you know, if they ever hear anyone mentioning the helicopter, they'll understand where that reference is coming from. And essentially, Milton was getting fiscal and monetary operations mixed up. He was misunderstanding how money gets into the economy. And who bids up prices if they have more money? Nobody. As we discussed it before, you know, just because it's burning a hole in your pocket, it doesn't mean that you start buying up things that you don't really need. Well, there might be a little bit of that. (laughs) I think I know some people might do that. (laughs) Well, there might be some of that, but you can't make that as a rule. Mm. You can't imagine that, you know, everybody has enough savings and everybody will just go, all right, well, this is more money than I will ever need, so I must get rid of it because, you know, otherwise I will be blown up. You know, that's just ridiculous. Oh, so he was saying that people will, once they've satisfied their saving desire, go out and spend down to the last penny. They'll just go out and spend the rest of it. Well, that's what it means, doesn't it? I don't think that's a very realistic expectation. Um, there's a lot of people that uh, save up for their Bali holiday and they head off over to Indonesia and they go to Bali and they get a lot more bang for their buck. Just because they've got a lot of money in their pocket doesn't mean that they start saying to the sellers over there, oh, I know that you're only selling this T-shirt for $2.50, but normally I'd pay 25 bucks. so here's 25 bucks. Mm-hmm. People in that situation, even though they have comparatively a large amount of money, still bargain and try to drive the price down. It doesn't matter how much money they've got in their pocket. They're still after the best price they can get. And all they need to keep that price down is competition. So the impact of this Friedman idea and those things that you're talking about that are constant, that we're at full employment and that we've got as much money as we want to save, that seems like that's Milton Friedman assuming that the economy is running at full efficiency, that there's no inefficiency. And so that if the government then comes along and does some spending, that's going to be a problem because now this extra spending is going to cause inflation. So it was kind of his way of putting the handcuffs on government spending in a way. This inflation talk always comes out when somebody starts spending money on something that they don't like, like education or healthcare or something like that. They never talk about uh, inflationary uh, expectations when they are getting their uh, checks from 
Franking credits. When they get the franking credits, there's no inflationary expectation whatsoever. Or when they get a tax card, there's no uh, inflationary expectation. It's always when the government spends on something that they don't really like. There's never inflation attached to military spending, and yet they spend a fortune on it. Right. Whoever controls the inflation story can more easily control the economic settings of the nation. It's a neoliberal hijacking of the conversation to, to push their uh, anti-government agenda. You know, For them, it's all about the private sector. And if the government spends money, it's inflationary. If the private sector spends money, oh, that's good for the economy. Absolutely. Absolutely. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle. And you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR. It is the government who decides how much to pay for certain things. Like in the Second World War, the government decided to force businesses not to produce uh, motor cars, but, you know, tanks. And because the country was operating at full employment, everybody got paid. So there was a lot of pricing pressure on everyday commodities. So they started issuing war bonds, they started rationing, and it doesn't matter how much money there is, the way it is directed is the key. And John Maynard Case knew this, and the people who devised the war bond schemes knew this, that the biggest enemy will be inflation, and they knew this even before they started redirecting the resources from one use to another. And so that gets on to the other question about what do you do when you are wanting to prevent inflation? What do you do? You started mentioning things like rationing, which is probably politically uh, sensitive to do in this day and age. Well, it depends on where the inflation stems from. It could be a pricing power, like the 70s oil crisis was caused by OPEC the cartel of oil producers, and they were able to make that stick. They could charge whatever they want until the Western buyers of of oil managed to suppress them. It was not uh, Paul Walker's or John Howard's or whoever was jacking up interest rates beyond 20%, Mm. like the monetarist thought that solved the inflationary problem, but it was either replacing the oil or beating the OPEC into submission, probably the combination of both. So it can be monopoly pricing power. It could be, it could be an asset price inflation. That's a bit more complicated, but let's say that the futures market is holding certain commodities. So the sellers of the commodities might wait if they can store it and set at a higher price. It's always somebody trying to charge more for their product. That's what inflation is. So you really need to understand on the ground what's happening with a resource to understand what's causing the inflation and therefore what to do about it. And then the what to do about it, it often comes down to regulation or government power to regulate. Yeah, it's no good just saying, oh, too much inflation, therefore we should raise taxes. That will probably not solve it. If there is 
a monopoly pricing power, you want to suppress that power before you start jacking up taxes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I have to admit, I fell into that trap <laughs> earlier in my MMT understanding that, oh, if there's too much inflation, we'll just raise taxes. Mm -hmm. It's very simplistic and it just doesn't work. And MMTers get criticized a lot on that issue. Why does that come up, this idea that the taxes are a way of fighting inflation and the reality is that that's not your first go-to for, for countering inflation? Well, because their understanding is that too much money chasing too few goods. So we'll just get rid of some of the spending power and there will be price stability then. So the idea is the taxes take money out. Yes, but this is very important to realize that increasing the money supply is not the cause of the inflation, but a consequence of it. It's the increasing prices that expand the money supply, not the other way around. So as prices increase, a government needs to supply more currency to meet that price increase? Yes. In the 70s, OPEC decided to increase the price of oil fourfold. I think they ended up having an inflation of about 300-something percent. But the expanding money supply was to accommodate that price rise. It's not that anybody decided to pay more money for the oil. So OPEC was the clear winner and everybody else was the loser. It'd be nice if people understood that because it's, it's not that complicated. It is not complicated at all. The, the increase of the money supply comes after the price increase. It doesn't cause the, the price increase. And so anybody who says that inflation is caused by increasing the money supplies is putting the cart before the horse. Absolutely. Where are we at with that Friedman quote of too much money chasing too few goods? Like, in a way, I feel like we agree with it. The focus is on not too much money. The focus is on too few goods. Too few goods. So we really should reword that to say inflation is money chasing not enough goods. I don't want to re reword anything that bloody Milton Friedman ever said. <laughs> so... We agree with it if we think it's money being spent. The problem is that, you know, everybody ignores the chasing part and concentrates on the too much money part or the too few goods. And that should be relatively too few goods anyway. It's the spending, the chasing, you know. I want to acquire that thing and therefore I bid up the price because I can. That's why I started with the whole house option thing that, you know, just because you have more money, you're not going to pay more. Some of what any economist says has to hold true. Otherwise, they're going to be uh, booted out. It's just where they place the emphasis on. Uh, <laughs> and uh, at Milton Friedman's emphasis was always anti-government, pro-private sector. And that, to me, that's always undervalued the input that governments make to an economy. He's trying to minimise that and uh, uh, rule it out. The big, big lie that Milton told about inflation was that only government spending causes inflation. He never worried about what the private market, what the financiers or what the big business or small business were doing when they were spending money or borrowing money into existence. So the big, big lie was that only government spending causes inflation, which is really useful if you want the government to stop spending, which is really useful if you want to raise unemployment and send uh, the ability to command resources over to the private sector. <laughs> and, of course, this big, big lie lives on as the fear of government printing money. If you're neoliberal, all government spending causes inflation. 
Unless you are receiving the checks from the government. <laughs> that part doesn't count. <laughs> Not yet. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. There was, back in 2019, a bunch of US senators led by Senator David Perdue, they submitted a resolution to the American Senate. And in the words of the resolution, this resolution was recognising the duty of the Senate to condemn modern monetary theory and recognising that the implementation of modern monetary theory would lead to higher deficits and higher inflation. And to shore up their case, they quoted a few economists, including Janet Yellen, and people might recognise that name. She is currently President Biden's Treasury Secretary, and she is also a former chair of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and she was the first woman chair from 2014 to 2018. And they quote her as saying of MMT that you don't have to worry about interest payments because the central bank can buy the debt. And she says that's a very wrong-minded theory because that's how you get hyperinflation. So while we're at it, why don't we have a listen to Janet Yellen placating the hyperventilating senators about hyperinflation at the Senate confirmation hearing. Senator, I agree with you that it's essential that we put the federal budget uh, on a path that's sustainable and that we're responsible and make sure that what we do with respect to deficits and debt leave future generations better off. But over the longer term, I would agree with you that the long-term fiscal trajectory is a cause for concern. We have to make sure ultimately the deficits that we run are consistent with fiscal sustainability. One metric that I do think is useful to keep in mind is uh, the interest burden of the debt. What share of our economy of GDP is going to pay interest on the debt? The higher that gets, the more we find we have to use tax revenue just to pay the interest on the debt. Um, It's important to remember that we're in a very low interest rate environment. Although the debt-to-GDP ratio has increased, the interest burden of the debt, interest as a share of GDP, is no higher now than it was before the financial crisis in 2008 in spite of the fact that our debt has escalated. And of course, eventually we have to make sure that primary deficits in the budget are sufficiently small. But right now our challenge is to get America back to work and to defeat the pandemic.
I completely agree with you, Senator Portman, that the Treasury Secretary has to be a voice for fiscal sanity. She acts like she doesn't know where interest rates come from. She's like, well, uh, I think Biden can do all his spending because luckily we have low interest rates at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. She's all innocent. And she was fed jamming for fuck's sake. (laughs) I'm so glad we're recording. I'm going to use that. (laughs) So at least she's backing the Biden spending packages, um, even if she's not exactly coming clean about how the federal government could pay for it. And even if she's giving nothing away about how the central bank (laughs) sets the interest rates. So what do they, they being like the Janet Yellen types, what do they think interest rates are doing in relation to inflation? Well, it depends who you are, really. If you are a mortgage holder, at the moment you are paying something like 3% and you are faced with paying 13%, a big chunk of of your income starts going to the bank. And that's what curbs your spending power. That's the theory. And in practice, it it kind of works. But if you are a business, for example, it doesn't matter, you know, at what rate you are borrowing because you are borrowing to make a profit. So if you have the customers, it doesn't matter what the bloody interest rate is because you know that you can make back that money and still make a profit. And there's all sorts of evidence that the economy doesn't get suppressed, slowed down or or quickened up by manipulating interest rates. So. Like inflation, with interest rates, there's winners and losers as well. But the reason they're mucking around with interest rates is because they think if they lower interest rates, there's going to be more business activity. If they increase it, there's going to be less business activity. Yes, is the short answer. (laughs) It goes back to this quantity of money theory. If they think that there's too much money out, well, they just take it back one way or another. It's the same argument as increasing taxes which would actually do something. And the other thing is that whenever anyone says anything about MMT, everybody just jumps on, ah, but it's money printing and my money will be worth half. It's, It's just ridiculous. But I have to caution people that I think that some of the MMT commentators are reactionary in this. They are also far too aware of the potential inflationary bout, even though it's down the track, you know, by 7 million miles, (laughs) when they shouldn't even be talking about it. We should be talking about what is it that we want to achieve politically. We want full employment, we want uh, environmental justice, we want social justice, but we are expecting the critics to just get their boots stuck into our sides about, oh, you print all this money, it's going to be inflation. I think we are giving them a free kick. You think we're giving them a free kick in what way? Well, we start talking about inflation even before they start about it. There's a lot of online chat about we can only spend until our productive capacity allows us to, which is true, totally disregarding that most of the what we call money is created by the private sector in the first place. Government spending is only about something like uh, a quarter of GDP. So... 
if the other three quarters of the GDP just goes bonkers, that's not a problem. As soon as the government does something, that becomes a problem. And we are prefacing our uh, political stance, yeah, but we are so careful about the inflationary uh, potentials, even before they mention it. Well, that's an interesting observation about how to talk about MMT. I have to admit, I'm one of those who the first thing out of my mouth would be there's no limit to how much the government can spend in the dollars that it produces, except for the limit of inflation. <laughs> you can say that there's no limit, but not without consequences. Mm. The, the government can spend as much money as they want to. They can do that, you know, but they can cause inflation. So what? But that's a different argument. It's not about the government's ability to spend, but about uh, a price level. And as we have discussed it, it depends where you spend it and who is the winner and who is the loser out of the inflation that you might cause. The interesting thing with this discussion is that people say that uh, the government can't just print money, otherwise it's going to be inflationary, therefore MMTs have got their heads completely wrong on this, without accepting the fact that this is what we have been doing for 100 years, that the government has been spending when it needs to, and it causes inflation if it's done incorrectly, but most of the time it's never an issue. And the the latest example with JobKeeper and JobSeeker during this latest economic downturn is a fantastic example of how a government needs to inject large hundreds of billions of dollars into the economy to keep it ticking over, uh, whilst inflation was, was going backwards, I believe, at some stage there. That always seems to be disregarded. And they stick with the old line, you can't just print money, it's going to cause inflation, when in fact the opposite has just been true. And not only that, one of the results of this massive government intervention was that the savings pool has increased. But what the mainstream is not talking about is whose savings have increased. Because I think that most of the money dished out through uh, the increased job seeker and job keeper and all the other stupid job program that they came up with <laughs> actually went to service debts or pay down liabilities like rent. So the money flowed straight through those poor people. It's not that they just kept the money and they're waiting until they can pounce on a spending opportunity. People are confusing the stocks with the flows again. Can you say more about that, um, what stocks are, what flows are, and why that confusion is so crucial to understanding inflation? The best way I could think to make a distinction between stocks and flows is one of them is static, the other one is fluid. So you can have a bunch of money staying dormant, that would be a stock, and it becomes a flow when you start spending it. Mm -hmm. Stocks they are the, the sums of flows. Whether the flows are positive or negative just increases or decreases the stocks. So let's say you have a bank account and you have a bunch of numbers in it. You have $500. That's a stock. When you pay your phone bill, pay 70 bucks, that's a flow. So then your stock will adjust to $430. But it doesn't happen by magic. The adjustment of stocks doesn't happen unless flows happen. That makes sense to me. Like if I'm earning 250 a week and then over the course of the month, after all my spending and income, I've got $200 in the bank. That's my stock. So why are we getting confused about inflation when we confuse those? 
the monetarists and most neoclassicals, when they get confronted by some home truth dished by MMT, is that they allege that an increase in stocks will cause inflation. And inflation is a phenomenon associated with flows, not with stocks. One thing that anyone who's unemployed will be very acutely aware of is that the rate of unemployment benefits is abysmal. And before the COVID, it was one third below the poverty line at the new start payments. And then, you know, we got the COVID-19 supplement. So that brought it up to the poverty level. And now, of course, they're right in the process of having that being rolled back. What happened sort of in economic terms that the rate of unemployment benefits ended up being so low? It was a political decision to not keep the, the, the unemployment benefits with the inflation or with wage growth or with a price index rather to be indexed. So what does indexed mean? That you are increasing the rate of pay with a, with a price of things that you need to spend on. So if the, the price of food increased by, let's say, 6%, then they would increase the unemployment benefit by 6%. That's what, that's what indexed is. So when you're an activist who is campaigning around rates of benefits, you really want to understand what indexing is. Good idea. <laughs> um, up until recently, the inflation rate yearly was 1%, 2 3%. The Reserve Bank was targeting a rate between two and three percent, and that uh, two to three percent inflation yearly that is not matched by the increase in the benefit is cumulative, is on top of one another, and then there's a growing gap. Okay. So we are looking at a gap between, let's say, a median wage and the benefit, and then. You are adding these gaps to it cumulatively, and in 20 years, of course, it doubles or triples. So that's how you end up being at two-thirds of the poverty line. Yes. There was a while ago where I was thinking to myself, why do we have any inflation at all? If you make a brick, it's a brick, and a brick goes into a house. And if a brick costs 20 cents to make, it's still the same bloody brick 10 years later or 20 years later or 100 years later. So how did that brick that built the house go from being 20 cents to 2 bucks to $20 why do we have inflation? But I've had it explained to me since then that to have a slight forward leaning of inflation, which is to say an inflation rate of about 2 or 3%, helps the economy work. Can you explain that to us? I think the consensus is that averaged out uh, at 2 or 3%, nobody wins too much and nobody loses too much. It depends on what makes up that 2 to 3% inflation, which parts of the goods basket gets to increase and which one gets to decrease. You know, it could be a positive thing, it could be a negative thing, like every spending, depending on how it's targeted. I heard it explained that if your price increases on something like a house, then you're more inclined to sell it and that will keep activity occurring in the economy. Whereas if it was flat, people would be less inclined to move things on. And certainly if it was deflationary, people would be sitting there waiting because they don't want to lose money. So having a, a slightly positive inflation rate, not too high, encouraged more activity to turn things over, to change jobs, to keep pushing for just a little bit more. Does that make sense? 
Here's Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at the University of Newcastle, speaking at a seminar hosted by Modern Money Australia. Well, the argument for low, stable inflation, certainly the stable part of it, is that it provides an environment of certainty for the private sector. I mean, not only firms, but also for households. In terms of setting wages, then knowing that inflation is going to rise at 2.5% or whatever makes planning you know, much more straightforward. So reasonably stable inflation presumably means also reasonably stable interest rates as well. So interest payments are fairly predictable. So planning can go on in terms of individuals buying houses, firms investing. The problem with zero inflation, and it's even before inflation gets to zero, is the prospects of deflation. Certainly central banks start getting incredibly concerned. And um, at least the last five years, central banks have been worried when rates are, you know, around 1%. They can see there are major issues associated with prices of goods and services falling. A commonly put argument in terms of deflation, so prices are actually falling, is that individuals will postpone consumption and wait for the price of the goods and services to go lower. Now, clearly, they can't be postponing all consumption, otherwise they'll drop dead but luxury items and holidays and all the rest, they could postpone. Then firms would say, well, if we're selling our goods to less than before, then money wages should come down because, after all, you're getting your goods and services cheaper. Now, that sounds plausible. Unless your financial commitments, specifically loan repayments, are going down commensurately, then you're going to be very badly off if you uh, experience a 5% cut in your money wage. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Well, um, I still want to come back to that issue of whether you need to talk about inflation because now here I've got a quote from Australian economist Richard Holden who is a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales. And he's actually a past faculty member of the University of Chicago. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yes, given that that's where Milton also came from. And he's also an editor of the Journal of Law and Economics published by the University of Chicago Press. So back in 2017, in the conversation, uh, the online media outlet there, he wrote, and here's a quote, If the government prints money and doesn't back that by issuing bonds, then there is inflation. And that inflation leads to the government needing to print more money to pay for stuff, which leads to more inflation. And pretty soon that leads to wheelbarrows of cash being pushed around. Hyperinflation, the destruction of all savings in the economy. So I feel like that uh, there is a group out there who will jump onto the inflation issue pretty quick when you start talking about the government's ability to spend. And so I just feel like uh, you do need to be armed with the um, response to that. 
And and I always like it whenever the word wheelbarrow and money is used in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're conjuring up images of Weimar Germany, which is interesting to me because before I was interested in economics at all and I would just glaze over, I still had that image of a wheelbarrow full of cash in my head. Like that's just part of what you soak up as a sort of cultural knowledge. Um, what we're talking now is another kind of inflation which is known as hyperinflation. And, of course, it seems like it's seared into the memory of these economists that hyperinflation in Germany helping the rise of Hitler in Germany. So when they, you know, wheel out their wheelbarrows, they really are talking about these insane kind of events. And I'm just, I still would say to you, Zoltan, that we need be able to counter that criticism that comes up through people like Richard Holden. Oh, yes. Who would, who would say that the spending capacity of the government can tempt us into these hyperinflationary events. Oh, I totally agree with the countering part. What I was uh, saying that we should not uh, just volunteer that uh, we, are, we are so responsible, blah, 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 because, they, because then, then we'll switch them on. We have to separate the two arguments. You know, I have to shoot them down one by one. We have to separate this inflation argument with the ability to spend argument. The government can spend, but not without consequences. And then we have to concentrate on the inflation part, which is the consequence part. Right. So the predominant message out there is the federal government is subject to the same financial constraints as a household. Martin Watts, Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Newcastle. So if it spends more than it receives in taxes, then orthodox economics says if it is to, quote, unquote, print money, then, of course, the world will fall in because there will be higher inflation and if government persists uh, engaging in deficits, then we'll have hyperinflation and we'll become just like Zimbabwe. So now we come to one of the most colourful, <laughs> dramatic aspects about inflation that really uh, gets everyone's attention. And, I mean, it is stunning what hyperinflation looks like. It's no wonder it gets everyone's knickers in a knot. So... You can't talk about modern monetary theory without running into Zimbabwe. And that happened not so long ago. You know, that was only back in 2007, just before the GFC financial crisis. Because if you look at uh, the figures in Zimbabwe, in this Wikipedia entry, it's saying that the peak month of inflation back in 2007 was estimated to be at 79.6 billion, with a B, percent, month to month. <laughs> and by mid-November 2008, it was at 89.7 sextillion percent. I don't even know what a sextillion is. It sounds pretty bad. So it's almost as if the prices are getting up towards infinity. Um, in 2009, Zimbabwe stopped printing its currency and by 2015 had announced that it was completely switching to the US dollar. But poor old Zimbabwe is still struggling with the value of its currency because in June 2019, they announced the reintroduction of the Zimbabwe dollar. By a month later, <laughs> 
they had inflation at 175% and Zimbabwe is still dealing with over 700%. And during that 2007-8 period, just the price of printing the notes to keep up with the inflation was astronomical. It was costing them nearly £400,000, British pounds, a week just to print the paper <laughs> to keep up with the inflation. So it's, it's an insane sort of situation to be in. I used to have a picture framing shop and... One of these days, a guy came in with two banknotes, and they were two $100 trillion Zimbabwe notes. And I asked him, where do you get it from? He said, oh, from Zimbabwe. And I asked him, and what would you buy with these banknotes? And he said, well, probably like a bus ticket with a $100 trillion note. <laughs> so <laughs> I love the Zimbabwe experience because MMT is accused of a number of things. First of all, there's a denial that the government has a limited spending power and all money comes from taxpayers. Well, I don't think the $100 trillion notes of the Zimbabwe economy came from taxpayers. Where would they get it from? Mm -hmm. And then we have to have a look. What is it that actually caused the inflation and who was the winner out of it? And in Zimbabwe's case, it was the government was the winner out of it because it maintained power. Simple as that. And the expansion of the money supply is not the cause, but the result of the increasing prices. So the central bank or the government spending had to accommodate the rising prices and outbid everybody else to uh, buy those products for their lackeys. And that's what was the hyperinflation in Zimbabwe. It was um, a supply and demand equation where the government was bidding up the price of short supply and because it's the currency issuer, it could just keep on creating currency to buy the very scarce supplies available because the, the farming sector had been catastrophically um, uh, decimated, affected. I don't like using the word decimated because it means 10%. Um, yeah. <laughs> Are you saying the government used its currency issuing capacity to outbid the private sector for food? That's exactly what they did. They were well fed to keep the police and the military happy in order to keep Mugabe in power. I had never thought of it that way, how the hyperinflationary episodes really illustrate how the government is the currency issuer and they're not using taxes or they're not borrowing before they issue their currency. Rowan Gray, who is a lawyer by training, and who set up the Modern Monetary Network. He was telling a seminar that was hosted by Modern Money Australia, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Modern Money Australia. He was saying that we, we the public, the innocent public, have been softened up by these examples of hyperinflation in order not to question the orthodox understanding of inflation and, I guess, by implication, government spending. I think it's important to think about the reasons why the narrative that people hear is what it is. There are people who every time something goes bad or someone wants to spend, says, well, have you heard of Zimbabwe? Have you heard of Weimar? 
These are talking points that were developed sociologically by certain groups, by certain interest groups, by certain theoretical schools or groups of intellectuals who had an agenda that every time any government tried to do something with its budget, it would lead to disaster. So that the answer is to stop trying to use the government's budgets and let maybe private sector actors or the financial sector to do things. So this is not just a story where people kind of learn bad history because it was in their fourth grade textbook and it, you know, it just happened to be crude or something. This had an explicit ideological function to keep telling this story the minute somebody talks about greater government spending. It's to scare people into staying away from it. One of the greatest inflationary bouts has taken place in Hungary in the 1920s. And my family was on the receiving end of the, of that inflation insofar as my great grandfather immigrated to the US and he was working for about, I don't know, 10 years or 12 years. And he sent his savings home in bulk. But by the time the money arrived, and I think he exchanged it in the US, and by the time the bangers arrived into Hungary, the family could buy about two loaves of bread with his savings of 10 years. Mm -hmm. And everybody associates inflation with something terrible like that. And it was not fun for my forebears for sure. But as soon as they start talking about always government spending on something that they don't like, they say, my money will be worth half. You know, all my savings will turn to crap. And that's just not true. So Warren Mosler reckons, and I think he's dead right. Warren Mosler, who is one of the founders of modern monetary theory, he's not an economist, um, but he was in the financial business. That. Most of these hyperinflationary bouts are a function of uh, government paying a particular price for something essential that everybody needs, you know, labor or energy or food. You know, there's instant competition when there's a shortage. This, this will drive up prices of everything. So is there any lessons that Australia or a developed economy can learn from situations like that? In other words, are there any fears around the capacities of the currency issuer that these stories have for us? Ah, yeah, sure. Uh, take climate change very seriously. It would decimate your productive capacity one way or another. <laughs> Maybe we should uh, do something about that first before we talk about money. I see. So what you're saying is that uh, one way of preventing inflation is to manage your resources properly. Most inflation is a shortage of some kind of resource. It may have different causes of that shortage. It could be a natural disaster or monopoly pricing power or whatever. But it's always a shortage of something. Otherwise, why would you bid up the price of it if something is abundant? Mm -hmm. So I, I think the the general talk is always about money and it's just so damaging because what we should be concentrating on is we should be talking about how do we manage our resources? Mm. Who owns our resources? The money is just a means of distributing the excess. Who gets which part of the pie? 
let's say we have a pie. If we have one dollar, one person who owns a dollar gets the entire pie. If we have two dollars worth of money in the economy, then we have to cut the pie in half. Now, if we have infinite amount of money, we can have microscopic slices. And it depends on who owns which proportion of those slices, which is how much money does one person command. A pie is a pie. You can eat it. You can't eat a dollar. What you're saying is how you distribute that is, is you, you give everybody some sort of weighting, uh, an accounting amount, to, to say this is how much pie you can have. But the, but the focus should be on the pie. Our entire globe is just the pie and depends how many ways you can slice it and who gets how many slices. Jeff Bezos gets a lot of bloody slices, I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good spot to end up on. What you're saying is that once you understand inflation, you can stop being fearful of it or unnecessarily fearful, and then you can direct your attention to where you really need to look, which is at the real resources. So, Zoltan, really thank you. Thanks for joining us, Zoltan. Very much appreciate it. Well, good to talk to you, Anne and, and, and Kevin. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back with Anne and Kev on 3CR. And I'm Martin Watts, Professor of Economics at Newcastle University. Uh, we've been talking about inflation and what we've been describing is how with inflation you get winners and losers and kept deliberately on the losing side are unemployed workers. And one of the organisations who've been campaigning around the rate of payment to unemployed workers is the AUWU, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. And with us today we have Kristen, who is a spokesperson with the AUWU. So welcome to the show, Kristen. Thanks very much for having me, Anne. So there's a lot going on at the moment. We've seen a really dramatic ramping up of attacks on unemployed workers. We had the Chamber of Commerce, which is an obscure business group, coming out and saying that they felt the government should put the unemployment rate back to $40 a day. And members of the Chamber of Commerce include companies like Telstra and Woolworths. And we've been trying to put pressure on these companies and many others to say, do you support this position? We haven't been able to get clear answers from those organisations, but we think they need to be held accountable for what the Chamber of Commerce has said. So you are running a campaign which is focusing on the position of the Chamber of Commerce. They're not so obscure, I feel. I feel like they do have the ear of the Morrison government at the moment. So you're taking on quite a powerful lobby group. You're right. They are very powerful and they are connected to very powerful people. I feel like these industry groups get away with what they're doing because the general public doesn't really know what the Chamber of Commerce is. And that's why we've been trying to apply pressure both to the Chamber of Commerce directly and to its members. So you don't have to be unemployed to join this campaign. So what sort of things can anyone do to pressure these organisations to get on side about not pushing people back down below the poverty line? Everyone who supports our right to live with dignity and to be able to eat and be able to pay rent without being in extreme financial distress can support us by calling those organisations, asking those companies to be accountable for this group and particularly calling the organisations that you're a customer of. Mm -hmm. Knowing that they can switch their phone provider or start shopping somewhere else um, is a really powerful way to send a message to those companies that are basically consenting to this position. 
I think if there's a silver lining to this COVID pandemic, it has shown us that the government can afford to pay a decent rate of unemployment benefits. That's right. It's obvious that overnight they were able to pull millions of people out of poverty. So we're calling for $80 a day. And $80 a day would take us back up to where the COVID supplement was during the height of the pandemic. Um, It would be just on the poverty line and it would give people just enough to keep their head above water while they're trying to find suitable work. It's what we've been saying for years. If you give people enough to eat, if you allow people to stay on top of their bills so that they're not paying overdue fees, you know, it literally costs more to be poor for these reasons, allowing people to update inefficient appliances. Um, So all of these kinds of really basic changes in people's life allowed them to start planning for their future a little bit. And that's been ripped away again now. The rate is due to be cut back to $40 a day. The uncertainty and the drip feeding of announcements about the rate is causing people anxiety and it means that no one is able to plan for their future. And on Monday, the 15th of February, the government started signalling that they intend to abolish a whole number of really measly um, supplementary payments for things like telephone bills, electricity and medications, which don't even go far enough to cover those basic items. And we are very worried that they're going to get rid of those things and then claim that they've increased the rate when really all they're doing is replacing uh, things that they've cut. Um, We do not trust the government. We do not trust them to look after us and to make a fair decision. So our demand is it must be $80 a day. We must be at the poverty line. There are a whole bunch of groups across society Big business groups like Deloitte and KPMG and the Australian Retailers Association alongside grassroots groups like ours saying it cannot stay this way. Um, We have a big week of action planned um, for the week beginning the 14th of March and we will be again at Parliament House. We will be calling on every unemployed person and all of our allies to show solidarity with us and to join in that week of action so there'll be more information coming out from us as we get closer to that date. Anyone can go and support the AEWU in this work. Jump online, get on the social media. If nothing else, just go and like the AEWU Facebook homepage. Please do. And head over to auwu.org.au. And also we're very active on Twitter. We share a lot of practical rights information. It's where we always also get out most of the information about what's happening in politics and what's happening in the media in relation to unemployment. And it's a really good way to get involved um, in our campaigns and show your support. You guys are doing such good work there. So thanks a lot, Kristen. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Anne. We really appreciate it. So the rate of unemployment benefits, that is such a good home example of how inflation creates winners and losers. Have unemployed workers been stuck at two-thirds of the poverty line for 26 years? Well, no, they haven't. That's not where they started. So it was really interesting to have Zoltan point out that it is the gap between what workers get and what unemployed workers get that's grown over the last 25 years or so. So what is it with this gap? Zoltan mentioned that it's due to the fact that inflation is cumulative over the years. So this idea of cumulative (laughs) is really important. You know, that's behind the idea of compound interest. It's behind the idea of economic growth. And of course, it's what contributes to the increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots. 
So at first glance, if you said something like, well, we're just going to give everyone an increase of 2% a year, that sounds really fair, but the gap will grow if you approach things that way. In fact, you can go online, which I did, and have a look at these things called compound growth calculators and run the numbers. So here it is. I've created Anne's model of inflation. 1994 was the last time that the rate of the unemployment benefit in Australia was increased by more than just the CPI, the cost of living. So let's imagine we're back in 1994. It's 1994. Paul Keating is Prime Minister. And under Victoria's new small bar licence, which was introduced by Premier Jeff Kennett's Liberal government, the first laneway bar in Melbourne was set up by a group of architects who wanted a quiet drinking spot near their workplace. It's 1994 and Muriel's Wedding, the movie, is released. It's 1994 and the band Silverchair is topping the charts. You say the money isn't everything But I'd like to see you leave without it So, we're back in 1994. Let's imagine that person A is working and earns $500 a week. And let's imagine person B is on New Start and gets $250 a week. The gap between them in 1994 is $250. Now, let's say they both get the same cost of living increase. Both incomes are going to double over 25 years. That'll mean that person A, who was earning $500, is now getting $1,000 a week, and person B, who was on an unemployment benefit at $250 a week, is now getting $500. So the difference between them is 500. So the gap has increased from $250 to $500 over the 25 years. So that shows you how over time with inflation, low income people will fall further and further behind. And the thing is, it gets worse. (laughs) Because even though the unemployment benefit is indexed to the CPI, You might think, well, doesn't that mean that the unemployment benefits are keeping pace with the rising prices? So how on earth did we end up below the poverty level? And economist Professor Bill Mitchell, he explains the problem in his online blog in a post that he wrote on Thursday, the 4th of February, 2021. He notes that Part of the reason is that the goods that are in the CPI basket actually differ enough from what unemployed people spend their money on that that basket does not reflect the cost of living increases for low-income people. The other thing that happened back in 1994 is that the unemployment benefit was not indexed to the rate of growth in wages, which the retirement benefit was. So the pension matches any growth in wages, which is not spectacular in Australia, but it is higher than the CPI. 
So that means that the pension, which started at the same rate as Newstart, has actually increased more over the 25 years. And so when you don't index the unemployment benefit to the wages growth, essentially what you're doing is saying that unemployed people are not allowed to share in the increased material prosperity of the nation. That's what you're saying. Don't forget, unemployed workers are kept deliberately unemployed by federal government policy. And you can listen to our episode on the Nehru to learn more about that. And, you know, all of this is something that the finance types understand. They get it. So I really hope that the campaigners understand inflation and indexing, because otherwise the next generation of activists is going to be faced with the same problem all over again. You say the money isn't everything But I'd like to see you leave without it Just, just to summarise with inflation, my, my understanding of inflation is that we need to set the sweet spot that we we're talking about at the beginning of the, the show. A sweet spot is a slight forward lean on inflation to have a little bit of inflation, but not too much inflation. And you don't want to have zero inflation and you definitely don't want to have deflation. So they kind of set a, a market around two or three percent so that people are seeing an increase in what they're earning or selling stuff, uh, which kind of gives people a slight motivation. That's my understanding of why we have a target rate of inflation of around 2 or 3%. It's very Goldilocks, isn't it? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Okay, and well, we're heading towards the end of the show. We have to make way for Mafalda. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. See you, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself, so if you got all the pleasure... What, I had no, I had no pleasure. I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure. That's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was pleasurable for me. I think we've got a multiplier. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.